I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Thank you. Um, can everyone hear me? That's the first uh, important question I have. Um, yeah, so Rachel and I are going to talk, and then you guys are going to get um, your turn to ask questions, so please do um, have them ready. Um, then Rachel is going to sign uh, books, so I advise any of you who haven't yet got Coventry to um, to do so, because it's a remarkable, remarkable book. Um, certainly my response, my initial response, was a kind of... Uh, joy as paragraph after paragraph delivered these streams of um, thrilling, challenging writing on on driving, on uh, living with teenagers, on house renovation, on art, on divorce. Um, but as you read on, you realise this, this sort of brilliant surface is flowing atop something more, more elemental, and that the subjects of each essay, um, rudeness, familial conflict, whatever they are, um, aren't necessarily what the, the essays are really about, or rather they're about those, but they're about so much more as well. Um, not all essays want or read to be, uh, want or need to be read twice, but, um, but the ones contained here aren't just powerful for their prescience and their truth. There's also, uh, their artfulness and complexity and their mystery as well. Um, and they come at a very interesting time in Rachel's career when, you know, with her eighth, ninth and tenth novels um outline transit and kudos she's produced i think her greatest works of fiction yet as alex said you know that's not hyperbole these are really superb works of literature um and i hope to get onto how the writing of those of these essays sort of filtered into the composition of those works and vice versa um but before we do i'd like to ask a broader question which is um what is an essay for you? What's, as primarily a novelist, what is it that the essay can offer that, that fiction can't? Um, it's, I, in fact, I've just sort of jotted down a couple of things because I was thinking what the answer to that question might be, and weirdly it feels like um, sort of privacy or autonomy. It's a, it's a very simple um, position, the essay position. In, and maybe all it is is the simplicity of... of a sort of door-to-door salesman <laughs> that, that you're making your pitch. You know, you've, you've got an idea and it's just you making this pitch. So um, I find it a very free... It, it is the blankest of blank pages and mm. it, it really doesn't... I think it's m- morally uh, a, a really sort of excellent form in that it doesn't require the reader to do anything. Um, to suspend disbelief or to, to have, you know, to, to, to sort of enter a, a state of, I don't know, imaginative sort of coercion or, or mm. um, and, it's, and it should be quite short, I guess that's the, so I've always found them, um, I've, I've travelled in my essay writing, I've found that, that it's got me to somewhere new in, in a way right. that almost the performance of fiction you have to actually be in that place um, to be able to do it mm. so yeah so is that I think acuity is something that's always been recognised as a great strength of your writing you seem to see everyday life with, with at some sort of with some sort of preternatural sort of um, perception when you write these essays are you you know, I think of that Flannery O'Connor quote where she says, you know, I, I, I write to kind of work out what I'm thinking. Um, you know, do you write these essays once you've thought about a subject and arrived at a conclusion about it? Or is the process of writing a process of, of figuring things out itself? Well, usually I've figured out and I want to see if it can exist in, in language. Um, yeah, I probably have a sort of Walter Benjamin-ish 
uh, attitude to seeing, I suppose, a, a strange set of connections or strange part of life that it would be, you, you'd lose it if you tried to stage it mm. <laughs> in drama or, or um, get at it any other way. So it, it feels like a you can just make the... The, the sort of thinnest of, of lines sort of through things that are happening, you know, around you. And, I mean, the rudeness essay is a really good example of that. But, you know, the question I asked myself was, is it true that uh, people become rude when uh, some evil is is upon us? <laughs> or, or does rudeness signify the... the um, the sort of advance of wrong. Mm. Um, so that's a kind of weird question to ask yourself. And, and if you're a sort of ancient German philosopher, you might <laughs> write, you know, some... So, so to, to actually try and answer that question as a civilian, um, as someone not particularly qualified to answer it, as it were, other than as a human who can mm. use language. Um, so that's the kind of way that I would think, I suppose. And when you're... When you're writing from your life, I think somewhere you've talked about, like sort of using your life as the template. Um, what are the what are the rules when it's non-fiction as opposed to fiction? What's the sort of negotiation with with what you can explore and what you can't? Are there are there rules like that? It's not really rules. It's what works. I mean, you know, you think of how you um, you build a novel so that it exists and other people can go and walk around in it and so I mean in using yourself you are the building so people can just come and walk around in you for a bit and that that's a, a I've I've always found um it, it's it's much easier not to make ethical mistakes in autobiography for that reason because because you're you're sort of um power of extension is is really 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 limited um so and then it's completely obvious what you should use which is only what you have in common with other people um and we were talking earlier about i mean i grew up in la for instance and you said have you ever written about it i thought well that's not that that only happened to me (laughs) so i i would not i wouldn't ever think that that would be something i would write about and i'm trying to find the things that i think I have it that are universal in, in myself. Would you read um, part of the, the first essay? In the book? Um, I'm going to read, spoiler alert, <laughs> the end <laughs> of this essay. Which, in fact, I said to you, I was surprised that Chris had chosen this part because I felt that I had failed in writing... Uh, this paragraph. Um, She's a terrible judge of her. <laughs> I'm not going to try and say what it is. I'm just going to read it. Recently, hiring a car alone on a trip abroad, I realised that something had changed. The world no longer seemed familiar to me. I struggled to understand the car's controls and its alien shape and size. On the motorway, other drivers surged up impatiently behind me, sounding their horns. I had forgotten, it seemed, how to drive. Or rather, the degree of responsibility that driving entails suddenly seemed unmanageable to me. Why was everyone else not likewise crippled by this realisation? I moved into the slow lane, but lorries loomed in the rearview mirror one after another and then overtook me, their huge forms seeming about to suck me under as they roared past. On that wide, grey, unfamiliar road, swept along in the anarchic tumult of speeding cars, Every moment all at once seemed to contain the possibility of disaster, of killing or being killed. It was as if driving was a story I had suddenly stopped believing in. And without that belief, I was being overwhelmed by the horror of reality. The river of cars plummeted on, relentless and unheeding. But the fact of myself, of my aloneness, had somehow been exposed. Back at home, rounding a bend on one of the empty roads where I live... I came upon an overturned sports car on the verge. It was a hot summer's day. The upside-down car had its roof down. Lying stiffly beside it amid the foaming white cow parsley were its occupants, a man and a woman, 
their pale legs sticking straight out in front of them, their shocked faces as rigid as dolls' faces, their summer clothes askew. The man still had his sunglasses on. The woman's broad-brimmed hat lay in the middle of the road. The accident could only just have happened, but no one had seen it, and there was no one there. Thank you. Um, so there's this, this theme that you touch on there and that seems to run throughout your work in which you explore, I guess, perceptions of reality um, and that exposure of aloneness you talk about. Um, in an earlier novel, The Bradshaw Variations, for example, there's a character, Tony, who at one point she remembers when she was a, a child, um, she used to storm off to her room and when she did so, she'd become aware that um, uh, the quote is, downstairs was the ongoing story, plot-filled and relentless of everything she knew, but in her room there was silence, an absence of structure. By stepping out of the story, she had come upon the emptiness that lay all around it. And it's there right at the beginning of outline as well on this flight to Greece this man talks about how his ex-wife he's, he's split up from his wife and he talks about how walking past his old house makes everything that has happened since seem insubstantial and he says without structure events are unreal so if structures are what imposes reality and you investigate a series of structures here the road system parenthood marriage work is that something you view as necessary and right or is that a kind of source of terror because beyond it lies meaninglessness. No, it's definitely not a, not a source of terror. Um, it's the thing that really interests me about um, what is identity. And I suppose my, um, my sort of angle on that is particularly sharp because I, I feel... Um, that unusually for an artist, um, I, I was formed by lots of, of things that were very unhelpful, and I've had to to sort of <laughs> strip them off myself or sort of chisel away at them um, for most of my life. And, mm. and um, so I suppose that's led me to, to, I suppose, really wonder what they are and what um, their relationship to freedom is or lack of freedom um and how i mean so many artists that i meet um seem to have started much closer <laughs> to, the, to the fact of who they are and i seem to have had to um and i don't know whether it's i mean if i think about what those things are religion gender um social class color i guess um in you know, the, the sense that, um, you know, at this point, I really, I really question the value of, of the white voice. I mean, the white female voice included. And, and um, so all of those things uh, seem to interfere, seem to me anyway, to interfere with, you know, what I call truth, which isn't anything particularly other than the absence of those Factors. Um, so I'm, I'm always trying to understand what in in representation is coming from uh, those preformed bits of identity. So when you write about um, in the essay "Making Home," which is kind of um, again on the surface of things about about sort of renovating houses and, and you know designing your your living space. You talk about how... That sounds really embarrassing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like a house and garden, but, you know, the existential and stuff. Um, you write about, you retain the belief that other people's homes are real, whereas mine's a fabrication, um, just as I imagine others to live inner lives less flawed than my own. So if everyone feels that way, and it certainly chimes with, with me, and I think a lot of people would recognise that feeling, it's... It sort of poses a serious question, I think, about what reality is. And this might be me on the psychiatrist's couch, I don't know, but I often got a sort of vertiginous feeling reading these, these essays. They're not about, they're not about being reassuring, are they? They're kind of, they're, no, they're, they're, they're um, a defense of the moral purpose of self-examination. And, mm. and, okay, you know, I, I can't, unfortunately, you know, in, from certain aspects, I can't be, other than I am, in a sense, I, I can't be a, a, an entirely different 
person. So, so yeah, I have to use the annoying fact of my flat and, and um, to, to to examine. Um, but but I mean, I've sort of been sometimes asked, you know, what what is this sort of because I tend to use a lot of the same concepts over and over again, and particularly about um, sort of storytelling and, and how that actually forms part of um, our experience of, of living. Um, and most of all, what this truth thing is. Um, and I guess I, I think it isn't anything other than um, what results from precisely the kind of self-examination that, that I try to do. Um, it's, not, it's not a, uh, <laughs> a sort of sacred concept. Um, it, it's a process um, that, that leads you to arrive at, at a realisation. Mm. And is that then, is that the process that, that, that Faye is going through in, in the Outline trilogy? I mean, where all those, where all those aspects of sort of, you know, reality um, as normally presented in a realist novel, like, you know, description, backstory, a character who we come to know, um, they're reduced to a, to a minimum. Like, all those things are sort of, are there, but they're, but they're tamped down, if you like. Um, is that a sort of formal embodiment of that theme? Does it show more starkly the sort of relationship between self and truth? Um, well, I mean, outline is a, a response to a, to a f- feeling I had of um, deep malaise, I guess, in this whole enterprise. And I had fallen foul of... Um, aspects of, of exposure through writing um, the rules of that and how that goes in the culture and, and um, so I suppose what I was trying to do was write to that sense of of, um, of a systemic <laughs> problem um, as I as experienced by me, but but uh, you know sort of kind of who cares about that it was more actually what the example of me proved about um, kind of what was wrong I suppose with with um, our ways of telling and hearing stories mm. and. Um, I mean, a story is an amazing thing. A narrative is an amazing thing, and especially when you consider, you know, these times that we live in, um, where there's so much hatred and disagreement and suspicion and uh, total inability to empathise with one another. And yet, if if all of those different people went to the cinema and watched Star Wars, a, a good one, or a, a, I don't know, a good Star Warsy type of film, everyone would like it. So, so agreement would be created by this successful narrative. I mean, I think the, the first writer who's a really good example of that is Jane Austen. And I've become so suspicious of Jane because of the people who like her, the friends she keeps. Um, but, but yeah, it, it, that amazing thing that, that stories do um, or can do, uh, which is create agreement. Um, I guess I saw somewhere in in the where the novel if you can refer to that sort of enormity um the novel in english uh was had sort of gone to um that it was it was almost doing the malign opposite of that mm. so it was creating agreement but agreement about things agreement in a really wrong way um and I think I saw that even in my own sentences, that they were predetermined almost by... Um, they were almost like units. <laughs> that, that, I mean, in the way that a cliché is, um, but, but actually more, more insidious than that. Mm. You know, that even just these ways of expression that, that... You know, where did they come from? From social class, from nationality, from education, you know, I didn't know, but I, once I decided to stop using them, um, it was an amazing, <laughs> uncluttered um, landscape that I sort of walked into. 
And presumably that that sort of your thinking about story, you know, these essays these essays were all sort of written in amongst the outline trilogy, is that yeah. right? Um and I think they are sort of all communicating with each other. I think that's one of the great sort of pleasures and rewards of the book because say in Lions on Leashes, you know, you write about this is an essay about like living with, with teenagers and negotiating that. Um, which I was writing furious notes, saving it up for six years hence. Um, you write about parenthood as a form of control over the family story, and in Coventry, which describes in part a falling out with your parents, and you talk about their refusal to talk to you as a response to, to their failure to control the story. Um, so once these ideas of storytelling as a form of control are established in those, in those essays, then in, in, on rudeness, you kind of interrogate that idea of control and you probe a series of questions about your behavior towards your, towards your children when they were much younger and how, you know, you were larger. So if you wanted them to move, you'd pick them up and move them or you'd, you'd make requests of them that were more like sort of issuing orders. Um, you know, things I do with my young daughters all the time without really thinking about it a lot of the time. Um, so it seems like there's an argument unfolding throughout these, these essays in sort of one strand of the essays that's about um, respect, like respect for people as individuals and trying not to control their stories, like letting them form their own, their own stories. Do you, see, do you see narrative, whether it's on the personal level or the, or the political level, like narrative being used as a means of control? Well, I think it's something that has to be... Um sort of thoroughly examined in, in one's own life. Mm. And, um, you know, I was thinking earlier today about... I was wondering if, if we might talk about uh, humour and comedy because, you know, I often think I've lost my sense of humour. And, and when I first started writing, I so saw part of my obligation... To be to entertain and mm. and to sort of charm that that and, and and that also seemed a, a very um, that seemed a, a sort of tradition in in the English novel that I kind of related to this sort of black comedy and satire as a as a a sort of acceptable way of of being political and, and I've definitely become sort of less and less funny and less and less interested in being funny and more and more suspicious of, of mm. humour um, because I guess I think I mean the examples that you're talking about um, I'm, I'm really interested in, in relating every single aspect of one's own personal morality, one's own conduct, to the darkest <laughs> developments, you know, the, the, the darkest things that, that could be done with, with those actions um, in, in the worst circumstances. And, I mean, that might be an overreaction <laughs> to <laughs> Boris Johnson being Prime Minister for another five years, but, but I don't think so. Um, I kind of think that... that there's some, something that's happened in, in sort of liberal culture and liberal thinking that laughed at everything. And that, that it was almost like nothing, as long as we were really funny, <laughs> it would somehow take, I don't know, remove the power from the things that we were laughing at. And that's been so proved not to be true. And it's such a dangerous thing to do. Um, that yeah, I guess that um, that level of of taking seriously these really small domestic things, you know, now seems to me, you know, not a, a wasted effort. Mm. Yeah, control is is uh, exactly what we're all talking about, um, and that example of of. It's really interesting, you know, this is what children do for you also, um, is give you these interesting ex examples of, of um, violence and, and uh, but all on such a, yeah, such a sort of micro scale. Mm. Mm. 
now that you mentioned uh, that man, could you read? <laughs> could you read something from On Rudeness? I will, but I'm not. Gonna, I'm not. I think we agreed. I was not going to read the mm. uh, anything that had the Brexit word in it. That's true. So I'm just going to read from the beginning of this essay. In a world as unmannerly as this one, how is it best to speak? In the airport, there are crowds of people at passport control. An official is present. His job is to send them into the right queues. I've been watching him shout at them. I've watched the obsessive way he notices them, to pick on them. When I get close enough, I speak to him. There's no need to be rude, I say. His head jerks around. You're rude, he replies. You're the one who's rude. This is a place of transit. There are all sorts of people here. People of different ages, races and nationalities. People in myriad sets of circumstances. In this customs hall, there are so many different versions of living that it seems possible no one version could ever be agreed on. Does it follow, then, that nothing that happens here really matters? No, I'm not, I say. You are, he says. You're being rude. The man is wearing a uniform, though not a very impressive one. A white, short-sleeved synthetic shirt, black synthetic trousers, a cheap tie with the airport's insignia on it. It is no different from the uniform a bus driver might wear or someone at a car rental desk, someone who lacks any meaningful authority while also being forced into constant interaction with members of the public, someone for whom the operation of character is both nothing and everything. He is angry, his face is red and his expression is unpleasant. He looks at me, a woman of 48 travelling alone, a woman who doubtless exhibits some signs of the privileged life she has led, with loathing. Apparently it is I, not he, who has broken the social code. Apparently it was rude of me to accuse him of rudeness. The social code remains unwritten, and it has always interested me how many problems this poses in the matter of ascertaining the truth. The truth often appears in the guise of a threat to the social code. It has this in common with rudeness. When people tell the truth, they can experience a feeling of release from pretense that is perhaps similar to the release of rudeness. It might follow that people can mistake truth for rudeness and rudeness for truth. It may only be by examining the aftermath of each that it becomes possible to prove which was which. The queue moves forward. I reach passport control and I pass through it and the man is left behind. So you, you go on in that essay to sort of say how you tell people that story and, and it sort of becomes confused. The story sort of slips out of your grasp because you find yourself, you know, relying on descriptions of the man's ugliness to prove your point that he's a bad man. And that sort of disappoints you because that's not how you should be winning the argument. And other people see it as you sort of quickly realize that, that rudeness, truth, it's about perspective and which side of a of a divide you're on um and i think that essay in particular sort of i was reminded a lot of um kudos which is a book that's sort of clotted with all these sort of terrible divorce stories this really like acrimonious um ugly vengeful um divorces and you write about the arguments over brexit resembling sort of arguments um what it must be like to be the child of divorcing parents. Um, you're right. So I assume that was, that was being written at the same time and Brexit presumably was very on your mind. We were just saying before how, you know, you're kind of a potential hostage to fortune writing about something like Brexit in a novel, but yet it remains yes, just, exactly. as, uh, no just, as current, just as current <laughs> as it did uh, last year. Um, is that... I mean, how did it feel, right? Was it just something that you felt you felt you had to engage with? Was there any any sort of um, the answering a need within you, or was it just so current you couldn't sort of escape it? Um, no, I mean, I think the the, um, the first point about um, the difficulty the difficulty of, of well, which is what I say in the essay, it's like I can't tell this story. Mm. I can't tell the story about the guy at the airport. It doesn't prove anything and I think I, well, I don't think I know I, I sort of started there because 
that, that was my whole point, that these stories no longer prove anything mm. and that there's no story that can be told about this, about the differences between people. And, and you know, Brexit is whatever, this phenomenon, <laughs> it and its associated things, is sort of our example of it, but it, it is a more global... Um, you know, this is a moment in history, or this is a, a, a phase in history, um, where the, the the differences between people um, almost can't be understood. In and then you think, how were they ever understood? Were they ever understood by anything better than a, a tired-out Victorian sort of concept of society, of society as a structure and is it actually the case that within that structure everyone has their own reality? Mm-hmm. Um, and, I mean, in the rudeness sense, I, I go on to talk about what liberal people do with this, in the face of their reality being threatened, and they try and defend it with words. And what's the relation of that to, <laughs> to yeah, the rudeness of, of that, that suddenly is, is um, sort of filling public space? And... and I think the key in that is that I don't think liberal people necessarily thought that theirs was a, only a reality. I think they mm. truly thought it was reality. <laughs> it, it wasn't their reality. Um, so, I mean, these are really, really interesting themes, I think. Um, mm. And, I mean, one of the things that I, I sort of get into in, in the essay called Coventry is the idea of silence and... and that being, I mean, it's funny the number of people who've responded to that essay with, and, and of course, if you're anywhere other than the UK, you have to explain what being sent to Coventry is, which is always so. And places that I've gone and other countries where this book has been published, um, people love using this word Coventry and um, <laughs> and sort of yeah, sort of being able to ident- identify things that have happened in their lives. Saying Coventry being, is exotic. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah um, sent to Coventry. <laughs> So, so it was amazing how many people related to, to that terror of being cast into mm. silence. Um, and I suppose what I'm trying to work out is, is whether silence is a location um, and whether it's actually a, a, um, a, a very moral location and a place of power and whether actually if you didn't... <laughs> Poor language into into these um, malign forces. Uh, if liberal people did not do that, if we met it with silence, you know what would happen? I mean, it's kind of an interesting question. Mm. If you didn't talk about Donald Trump, would Donald Trump not exist? I don't, know. <laughs> I don't know if you can say all these names in a church. Yeah, I think you write. There, uh, you say, in most of my stories, I allow the truth to look after itself. In this one, I'm not sure it can. Um, and that made me think of something in, in Aftermath, um, the essay about your divorce, where you write, um, my husband believed I had treated him monstrously. This belief of his couldn't be shaken. His whole world depended on it. It was his story, and lately I've come to hate stories. If someone were to ask me what disaster this was that had befallen my life, I might ask if they wanted the story or the truth. Now, that essay, which I think was written between the Bradshaw variations and then Outline, which came five, six years later, um, that essay seems to document a crisis in your relationship with, with storytelling. Was that, was that the case? Um, I mean, yes, and um, it's also a, a, I suppose, fairly common psychological or personal crisis of, of as amply described by Carl Jung, of <laughs> midlife sort of. I mean, that that really is the sort of Jungian principle: is, is that at a certain point you begin to see that this is a stage set and it starts to <laughs> um, look a lot less reliable and, and um, you realise that, you, yeah, you have created your own, you know, the story of your own life. Um, I mean, I think there's a another thing that sort of interests me in, in that um, whole idea, which is 
a direction that um, the novel and increasingly the contemporary novel um, has gone in, which is the idea of point of view um, and that being actually the because there can be no universality. You can't write a middle march anymore with some <laughs> extraordinary narrator who sort of knows everything. Um, and I guess another sort of motivating factor, I suppose, in formulating outline was thinking, okay, if you know, if if I say that I am not going to to enter into this point of view writing, which to me is a kind of divorce. It's, it's you know, here's, here's it from this person's side and here's it from that person's side and I, I just don't want to look at the world like that. Um, I don't want to, to go down that, to me, cul-de-sac. Um, yeah, uh, how, how could you, how can you describe something without an omniscient narrator and without the witnesses that are the point of view narrators? Um, and yeah, out there was... So how does it feel, um, you know, having formulated this, this radical new style, sort of eight, eight books in, eight works of fiction in, um, and then completing that trilogy? What's your relationship to your earlier work? How do you feel that someone might sort of dive in and devour Outline and Transit and Kudos and then go back to the country life or Arlington Park? Like, what, how, how does that make you, make you feel? As they should, because they're wonderful okay. books. Yeah, but how do you feel? <laughs> no, they're like fantastic. But it's such a, it's very unusual. There's such <laughs> finding a sort of out about my dark past. Um, well, so. I mean, you know, Saving Agnes, which was my first book, was published when I was 25, I think, and now I'm 52. And that is, uh, I haven't read that book for many, many, many years, and. and um, you know, everyone has has the, the sort of feeling of, of I don't know embarrassing photos of you when you were you know oh God, yes. in a wearing you know different fashions and had a different hairstyle. Uh, I, I sort of feel that because it's such a it's such an intricate document, a novel. It's such a, a, a sort of imprint of of yourself. Um, yeah, I just have to hope I knew what I was doing when I wrote it, I guess. Um, and, and, no, it's hard. I, I suppose I feel a bit disconnected from, from that earlier work um, and possibly disconnected from future work as well. Um, I don't know. But when you, for, for you, you can't write in that, not even omniscient, but say like traditional close third or whatever it is. But when you, when you read someone else doing it, do you think, oh, I'm... I'm Done with that. I don't want to read this anymore. It's yeah. it's it, it's <laughs> off the path. Yeah, I'm going to read magazines. <laughs> okay, and that shortens, <laughs> reduces the to read pile quite significantly. A bit. Well, no, it's some, some pretty hefty hefty things to get through in in you know other genres. Um, but I thought with with say with a novel like Arlington Park, that begins with this beautiful like five page description of. Of rain coming in, sweeping over this this city, and specifically this this suburb where the where the novel's set, um, does sort of not writing like that, like denying that that sort of aspect of of fiction. Does that does that feel like a sort of like a useful limitation you're putting on yourself, or does it feel like liberation from something? Oh, complete liberation in. <laughs> In a sense, except that, I mean, I have a similar rainstorm um, description right, yeah. in Kudos. Yeah. It's just that someone's saying it mm. rather than me writing it. And I guess the thing that happened in my brain, which was returning all of those um, literary... Uh, sort of shapes <laughs> back to humans um, those, those components of, of narrative back to humans um, it, it, I guess, you know I suppose what I've reassured myself I thought I can still use them they're still there it's not like I just don't own them anymore I'm not you know um, but I can correspond with them 
Um, because, yeah, there is a... a, a uh, and sometimes I wonder whether actually I might suddenly pick up the, the stray end thread of something that leads precisely back to telling a simple story again. Mm. Um, that wouldn't surprise me particularly. Um, so I don't know. Yeah. Well, that's what I was going to like. One simple, well, one short but not simple question before we open up, um, open it up wide. Um, with the outline trilogy completed, is that is that sort of like formally is that completed? Like, what 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 does more fiction from you look like? Well, I think more anything is problematic. Probably, um, I think the space that you know the space to say anything in the space that that could sort of um, ethically filled is very 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 small and um, it's definitely time for you know other voices um, as I said earlier you know definitely not white male voices and probably not white female voices either um, you know that that day is done those things have been said and I feel that very strongly and so I think well if I'm going to speak <laughs> it, it it has to be be something that only I could usefully say and quite what that is um, I don't know but I think I mean I suppose if, in terms of like what I'm actually tinkering with in, in um, I'm much I'm still very interested in, in um, the attempt to get beyond language and or to get the better of it in some way um, and I, yeah, I don't. Um, I have I've sort of made a, a couple of small breakthroughs on that front. Um, but I, I suppose the idea I had was actually writing some kind of silent, <laughs> silent work. Um, and you can do that in other forms. You can do that in art, and you can do that in music. Um, and I'm quite interested in. in trying to do it in language but um, yeah so that's wow I'm tantalized <laughs> that's what's going now. on in my shed <laughs> a lot can happen in three years like a chatbot may be your new best friend but what won't change needing health insurance United Healthcare tri-term medical plans underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company offer flexible budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states learn more at uh1.com many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out my solution is plush care plush care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey they can prescribe fda approved weight loss medications like wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify plus they accept most insurance plans to get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Um, okay, have we got uh, microphones? Have we got... Uh, and can we see some hands? If anyone has a question they would like to ask. We've got a question down the front here. Hi, Rachel. Hi there. Um, there's a few things I picked up on... Um, and that sense that when I read your characters, especially in the trilogy, there's this deep, deep insight into psychoanalysis and perceptions and, you know, mundane things, just like a little clock, piece by piece taken away. And, I mean, you keep talking about this is my voice, everything else has been written, you know, taking ownership of I'm a white female, but deconstructing your own identity I mean, is that being through your own process of you talked about taking layers of yourself and, you know, looking at your own life and then the difficult, you know, the how you had to deal with aftermath. And so the characters that you created, was that from, you know, reading around or, or just your own deep, deep internal process of well, your own? Where did the... I can't hear you. So the, 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 the kind of like... The intricate details of when we get inside the mind of these characters, is that born from your own experiences of peeling away layers of your own life or just 
reading around, you mentioned Carl Jung. I mean, I saw all of the archetypes, the universal symbols. And, um. Well, I guess in, in the end, I'm a, um, a fiction writer. And I guess I became that because I had an ability to tell stories about people and make them make the characters sort of <laughs> do things. And I, that's still my trait, for want of a better word. Um, and I, but I've just bound it to... to um, I've sent it in, in a very different direction. Um, I mean, a lot of the... I mean, my, my self-examination is... is Entirely brutal, and um, I'm, I'm not at all interested in myself, or ex- except as an example of things, good or bad. Or um, so, and I, I probably love other people more than <laughs> than I love myself. So, I suppose for me, that there's the joyousness of, of writing um, comes from that act of empathy um, when I actually feel I understand the other or another um, that feels uh, yeah, that feels like a gift um, hope that's an answer thank you, I, I speak from total ignorance I haven't read any of your work uh, but oh I've, dear! Well, <laughs> but, this must so be very I've been boring. thinking, <laughs> what's this treat in store? But clearly, one of the things you said early on was about making, <clears throat> want to make sure you didn't make any eth- ethical mistakes. And I thought, gosh, that's a terribly restrictive thing to be burdened with. Or is that the big challenge that you enjoy, sort of um, oh, confronting I mean, ethical issues? It's the consequence of. 30 years, I guess. Is it 30 years? Almost 30 years of writing and having presumably made a lot of mistakes, <laughs> you know, along the way. Um, that's, that's not... It's a seasoned position, I guess, that I've come to, that, that that's what's most interesting um, in what I'm doing. And if, if I have any... If there's any value to, to my voice, then... then it has to be in in um, that that degree of of uh, skill, for want of a better word. Um, you know, other people are probably far better at <laughs> everything else than I am. But if there's this one thing that I that I can do, um, because I've learned how to do it over such a long period of time, then then that beca- yeah, that becomes the thing I'm interested in um, doing. Hello, thank you for coming to speak to us. I just wonder, you say, you know, you're not interested in yourself, and I mean, inevitably, that makes you interested in other... Can you hold the mic a bit closer? Yeah, that makes you interested in other people, and I wonder, in writing other people, um, to what extent do you think you, or you try to represent their voices, and to what extent do you stop yourself actively from representing other people's voices, in the sense of, like, considering the ethics of you know, speaking about other people versus speaking about yourself because we have our own experiences, but then we also inevitably, if you're right, you write about other people. Mm-hmm. So I was wondering what you think about the ethics of writing about... Well, I mean, the reason I felt uh, so sort of relieved and on firm ground the minute I had kind of worked out the form of outline was um, that I... I I felt I had found the, the, the right place in, in response to that, which is that, again, it's a question of speech, and um, there's a big difference between what is um, put into public space and what comes out of private knowledge. Um, and it seemed to me that a big problem with one of the elements of the malaise in... in the novel that I was talking about earlier was that so much of it was private knowledge. So much of what a novel consisted of was um, the book appearing to know (laughs) 
things about a person who was not the book, if you see what I mean, not the writer of the book, it was the writer of the book pretending to... Um, and that, that seemed, yeah, very um, sort of unclear to me um, in, in terms of an ethical artistic position. Um, so I guess I thought, well, anything that is put out into space, and that, that includes speech, I mean, that really is speech, um, is... It's public, it's owned by everybody. You, when you say something, even if you then say, please don't tell anybody I said that, um, you have given it away. When you do something, you can be accused of having done it. Um, it, it doesn't exist on two separate levels. Um, so I guess I felt that was the way, and, and I mean, it did result in a, um, narrative style that I suppose I worried because it is slightly unreal the 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 ability of people in these books to to talk so continuously and and tell you know about the things that have happened to them but I kind of didn't care I just thought actually everyone sort of get the idea there um so yeah it, it was the idea that anybody walking past would get exactly the same information that the book is offering. Hello. Um, given that or, uh, a lot of or some of the details uh, of your life are shared with Faye, uh, and in Coventry the experience of having daughters seems to figure so prominently, why did you decide to give Faye sons? Um... Because I want it to be, um, yeah, I didn't, I, I basically thought in the position of reader, you're, you're wondering who the writer is and, um, vaguely, you're reading a book and you're sort of vaguely aware that this person called Tim has written it and, but the book is not about someone called Tim and you're like, well, and then usually it'll say on the back, Tim grew up in Australia and, if you find a bit in the book about growing up in Australia, you'll assume that that has come from Tim's own experience. And so I wanted it, the reader just not to even think about that. And so I wanted Faye to look as much like who you might think <laughs> just from looking at the back of the book or reading the little, you know, this person's a writer, it's a woman, um, English. Um, but I didn't want... Uh, it to be mistaken for autobiography. Um, it, I want, you know, it's a novel. So I just did that to, to try and, I suppose, interfere as little as possible with the reader in terms of who they thought I was, um, and how much they were likely to think that Faye was me or, um, so, yeah. Uh, yeah, you were saying a lot about um, working around language and what can be done with that. I can't, I can't. And as well, you were saying about um, how we've come, come to a place where um, white male and white female voices have kind of exhausted themselves. Do you think now, especially with what you write in, that perhaps the task of um, someone in a position to write is not so much to say... Um, the things that the person in that place can say, but to give a place for people who don't have that space to be heard, to have many different voices, sort of like a chorus. I think I missed the first bit of your question, because obviously my um, so hearing is not... In the sense that language is kind of something to be worked over, it's also, in your work, become a sort of tool to expand the amount by which people can speak and to give many different places to people who may not have the place in themselves. So rather than you taking the limelight, you provided many other lights for people to speak. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that still doesn't... Um, I would still feel very limited in in who who those people could be. <laughs> because... No, that would be a very important issue in, in terms of encroaching on, um, 
experiences that I haven't had um, and and identities you know that I I, I am not <laughs> and could never be um, and can never know enough about to be the representer of them so I suppose the thing that I've stuck to is and the reason I've I've stayed so close to something that looks like me in in this work um, is so that I don't make that mistake and and um, start telling people's stories in some <laughs> objectionable way you know when they when I don't really understand them um, or have the right to them a question here and then I think we'll have time for one more after that thank you um you quote a death in the family and how to get there in the Coventry series um and as a big fan of your work and now Scott's work um and as somebody kind of thinks you're on um outline trilogy and here's my struggle trilogy have been two of the great um kind of innovative literary journeys in the last 20 years or so um I was interested in your appreciation of his work and more broadly your influences in modern literature. Sorry, the last bit again. Yeah, who Just, who, who do you read? Who are oh, your kind of your modern, modern literature? literary? That's, a, that's um... an awful question to ask me. <laughs> you will hear nothing good. <laughs> um, she doesn't even like my book. <laughs> uh, I guess I feel um, I am asked this quite often, and uh, the answer I most often give is that. I would like to read the work of other places and nations that is not translated into English for, and I don't know why, um, our culture is not one of, of uh, regularly translating and reading European or, or um, world literature. Um, so I have this feeling that there's a huge amount of work out there that would be really interesting, but I can't read it. So I guess that's what I would want to read. Um, and I do enjoy um, reading work in translation. Uh, and a lot of the, the sort of um, purchase I managed to get on, on language in these books was from people speaking English as a second language, um, which is, I mean, kudos is pretty much all that. There's, there's maybe one person who's a native English speaker. And so I found that sort of Google Translate um, voice <laughs> very, very, very liberating. Um, yeah. And in terms of what else I read, I can never answer that question because the minute I'm asked it, everything... Uh, disappears from my head. Um, I'm reading a Japanese novel called The Matioki Sisters at the moment. Do you have one more question? Yeah. Hi, Rachel. Um, I have a question about fun. You talk a lot about ethics, about responsibility, about, uh, you know, is there even a space for your voice anymore about finding or struggling to find this new way of writing? Um, and you also then mentioned very briefly the joyousness of writing. Uh, you said you've lost your sense of humour. Where is the fun and why do you still do it, given that weight, given that very, very uh, thoughtful set of responsibilities? Is there still joy in there for you? Um, yeah, that's like the most fun I ever have is writing, definitely. Um, but, but, I mean, people do all sorts of things to have fun and they don't necessarily think that they're, you know, should be put between the covers of a book and <laughs> people charge money for it. So, you know, I have to question the, the purpose of what I do. Um, but but when, I, when I know what I'm doing and, and I'm doing it, uh, then, yeah, that's, that is the most fun. Thank you, everyone. Uh, please do um, get Coventry, get all those wonderful books, read them, enjoy them. Um, <laughs> and read my book, in fact. Uh, but most of all, thank, uh, join me in thanking Rachel Cusk. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. 
If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.